They're the ones who decide what is freedom of speech and what is hate speech. To you and I, that conference is hate speech. To them, it's freedom of speech because they want to honor uh, the bullies. So for Hindus, I think it's a very important point that the most important thing that we can do is raise awareness because they're not loud. They're at school. And I know because I went to Rutgers and I know that the, the Hindu student population is there to get A pluses. They're there to build, build, build. 20 years ago, a brutal terrorist attack took place on American soil. In order to distract us from the real culprits of 9-11, a group of politically motivated academics have organized a conference attacking Hindus. Contrary to the popular claim that academic freedom is for everyone, we know of examples where speakers were cancelled in places like Rutgers University on the allegation that they had criticized Islam even though such allegations could never be substantiated. I have one such guest and she is here to tell the story of the selective cancel culture in American universities. Namaste, this is Vijaya Vishwanathan for the Infinity Foundation channel. My guest today is Lisa Daftari. Lisa Daftari is an award-winning investigative journalist focusing on foreign affairs with expertise in the Middle East and counterterrorism. She regularly appears on television with commentary and analysis on vital developments in the region. She's frequently called upon to give briefings and expert testimony to government and private entities and has worked for a number of think tanks in the Washington DC area, where she has written exclusive reports for the Pentagon and other US government agencies. Lisa holds a master's degree in broadcast journalism from the University of Southern California and has completed her undergraduate degree in Middle East studies, Spanish and vocal performance from Rutgers University. Please join me in welcoming Lisa Daftari. Lisa, namaste and welcome. Namaste, thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you here. So Lisa, so you are an expert on the Middle East. In 2018, you're invited to Rutgers, your alma mater. Tell us what happened, who invited you, what were you gonna talk about and what happened? So the chancellor of the school, um, who was a former professor, reached out to me uh, actually in, I think, 2017 to try to get something in the calendar. Um, he said, I just I, I want you to come back to school. I want you to give a talk. We have a lot of alums who come back and give talks. And um, we finally came up with a date for October of 2018 uh, after a few postponements for other reasons. And um, for the, as for the topic, uh, I left it up to the school. I said, what do you think is a timely topic that I could talk about? And they came up with um, something about freedom of speech on campus, ironically enough, as the story unfolds. Um, and it's very important that you ask me who invited you to campus. This was not some fringe organization that is, you know, controversial or, um, you know, uh, questioned. Uh, this was the chancellor of the actual school. Uh, I have a personal relationship with him. He knows me and my character. And um, as to what happened, a couple days before I was headed to fly out to New York from the West Coast, I got a call on my cell phone from the chancellor. Again, we're very close. He calls my cell phone. Uh, and he said, Lisa, we have a problem. I don't know if you've seen this, but if you haven't seen it, you will see it soon. There is now a petition circulating uh, that started from one student. This is a Pakistani student who is um, also a part of the Muslim student organization. 
um, association rather, and uh, he started this petition calling uh, me an Islamophobe uh, and said, for that reason, I should be disinvited and my, my speech should be canceled. Um, very quickly after that, um, you know, the, the chancellor was really just lost. He didn't know how to, to address this. And the reason I say that is because, again, he knew my character. He knew uh, what I stood for, who I am. But he said to me, these kids sound like they're really hurting. And I said to him, Chancellor, what is this based on? Why are they hurting? You know, they're privileged kids who go to, to university, uh, you know, in the 21st century. There's nothing hurting about these kids who have never lived in any of these hot zones, by the way, who have never, you know, felt any of these, um, you know, age old kind of um, tropes that they hear from their family members. Now, Islamophobia is a huge allegation, especially against somebody who covers the Middle East, somebody who's invited to the United Nations to talk about women in the Middle East, to talk about persecution in the Middle East, uh, human rights in the Middle East, and to call that that individual an Islamophobe. Uh, and then, you know, um, they they went forward with canceling. Um, and the chancellor said to me, look, I and I said to him, why don't we have this? And I, and I invite them to come and confront me ask me questions. Why, you know, I said such and such thing, or what do I stand for? Or what do I think about such and such conflict? And he said, I think it's going to get ugly. And I think they're going to be aggressive. And of course, he's basing this on their bully approach, right? Think about it this way. The chancellor himself is saying they're going to be aggressive, they're going to be perhaps violent and physical, but yet he's he's you know kind of buying into the fact that they're hurting, uh, and that they're they, they have grounds for you know calling me an Islamophobe. Um, very quickly after that, I got a lot of calls from the media, the school paper, for example, and it escalated all the way to um, national broadcasts like Fox News and NBC and CBS and others. Um, where I told my side of the story. And one journalist out of, um, out of Los Angeles was a Jewish newspaper, the Jewish Journal. He emailed me and said, Lisa, you have to fight back. He's like, I'm writing this article. I have, you know, I'm not, I'm not biased. But I went and dug up the quote that they are, they're basing their claim of Islamophobia on this quote, a talk that I gave at the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C. in 2015, where I was asked a question from the audience about ISIS's inspiration. And I said they claim to take their teachings from, from the Quran. They claim they basically have hijacked the religion and therefore base, claim that they um, are taking their inspiration from Islam. And they took out claim and said that I say that ISIS is based on the Quran and ISIS is based on Islam. And because this young, young reporter, early 20s, found this little uh, clip, I mean, that's when I was like, oh, my goodness, you know, they're, they're lying, um, they're falsifying quotations, and they are taking down my reputation, you know, and the school is allowing this. Most importantly, I'll underscore that a million times here, is that the school allowed for this to happen. Mm -hmm. Now, um, how many people signed this petition uh, to have you canceled, Lisa? Yeah, you know, that's what we kept watching. You know, how is this petition, um, you know, escalating then? I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I do remember uh, a group on campus started a counter petition 
to allow me to speak. Uh, and that was one of the conservative student organizations. And um, they started getting a lot of, of signatures as well. And what they did notice is that this petition was circulated to parents and others and online. They got so many other people. Again, the, the bullies called in the other bullies. Uh, this was not just a, you know, a petition that was signed by uh, members of the student body. This was, you know, and, and imagine if someone comes to you and says, we're going to have some hate-filled Islamophobe come to campus and talk about a lot of, you know, uh, hateful things. Well, of course, you know, if you're the average student who doesn't have much knowledge about the nuances of these topics, perhaps you'd, perhaps you'd listen and say, well, sure, I'll sign on to, to stopping hatred on campus, you know. Um, so very ironically, my talk that was supposed to be about freedom of speech was shut down and I did not have the freedom of speech to go back to my alma mater to give that talk that I was invited to give. So they claimed that it was canceled uh, or was it or was it postponed? Right. So what exactly so, was it? And that's, uh, that's an important point here. When I spoke to the chancellor myself, he said, you know, let's just agree to mutually um, cancel it. But, you know, we, we, we can talk about having something else in the future. I don't know right now. Let's just, their goal was completely uh, public relations related. Their goal was to not make the school look bad, but at the same time to cower into these bullies and, and what they wanted. Uh, and when I was interviewed by these media organizations, I told them exactly what happened. I said, they were these bullies. They came to the chancellor and the chancellor chancellor, you know, they canceled the talk. Now, there's no, at that point, there was no talk of a second date, there was no talk of postponement, and there was no talk of me going back at any point. Then once this negative publicity came out, uh, I got an email by the same chancellor and said, oh, Lisa, there must have been a misunderstanding. We would love for you to come back. And here are some dates that you, you can come back. Uh, and I very eloquently um, had a way of saying, you know, too little, too late. This is really a stain on my reputation. Um, you know, if you Google my name, those articles come up. Um, and Obviously, people who know my work know that it's not true, but I'm, I'm sure that it, it has had and will continue to have repercussions in my career. So you are an expert on the Middle East uh, region and counterterrorism. So tell us about the term Islamophobia. What constitutes Islamophobia in today's context? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question, like everything else, right? So um, the actual term of Islamophobia, it's any phobia, is fear of, right, of, of, of Islam or, or, you know, judging or uh, marginalizing anyone because of their religion of Islam or looking at the religion in a negative context. And of course, there is some Islamophobia in the world, it's particularly after, you know, 2014, 15, we saw ISIS and other um, or groups after, I should say, 9-11 initially uh, when we saw you know, the taking down of, of the Twin Towers and other places uh, in Washington, D.C. by uh, Islamic terrorists. And of course, that was uh, the first taste that Americans got in our modern history um, of a large-scale terror attack like that. And of course, it was uh, launched by a terror organization. And that's when we started um, our you know, collective understanding of what is extremism, what is jihadism, what is this extreme version of Islam that uh, inspires these individuals to radicalize and to carry out these attacks. And because of that, of course, there's going to be a segment of the population because that's how 
people react, right? If I tell you that there is someone who's running through the neighborhood with blue hair that's robbing homes and you know uh, holding people up uh, for, for their wallets, you're gonna look out for people with blue hair, right? So that's a natural reaction for people to overreact and to become overly sensitized to a certain threat. That became that threat of extremism. It didn't mean that the person next to you who was Muslim, who had the Muslim faith, is anything of an extremist. And I think many people, including myself, went out of their way to differentiate, not only differentiate, but to look at those moderate um, Muslims and American Muslims as partners in calling out the radicalism because they don't want it either. Uh, and, you know, in this country, we get to a point where, you know, in this generation, everyone is hypersensitive and they take advantage of the social justice movements that we have. Uh, and everyone has, you know, an issue with everyone else. And instead of really facing or confronting difference of opinion or tolerating difference of opinion, we shut down different opinions and we silence different voices and we don't let them speak. And the first place where this hatred is born, whether it is Islamophobia or this bullying that happened is in the universities because they don't allow for freedom of speech. They don't really, they don't allow, and the teachers themselves, they don't allow for diversity of opinion. They don't allow students who have, you know, maybe a, 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 they're 1% of the, the, the minority of, of, of students, but let them speak, let others be enlightened. If that's a microcosm of the world in which they're going to enter after they graduate college, let them express themselves regardless of how popular that opinion is. But we don't hear it. We hear more of indoctrination. It used to be that you go to college to learn how to think not to be told what to think. And that's what we are seeing in colleges today. They're being told, they're being trained and, and molded to one narrative only. And that narrative, um, of course, is not open to any questioning or any criticism. So there's this, this alliance between Muslim groups and the leftists, in, and it's kind of strange and hard to comprehend because an honest leftist critique of Islam would have um, would have trouble reconciling Islam's uh, position on women's uh, issues, LGBTQ issues, etc. Now, Islam somehow seems to be above any and all criticisms, and that's not how the left is supposed to be, and that's certainly not how academia is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. How did this happen, this partnership and Islam being above criticism? Yeah, it's, it's one word, it's hypocrisy. Uh, right now is a great example of what's going on in Afghanistan, and you don't hear anything out of the left regarding the way that women are being treated. Uh, they're being told to stay home from school. They're being told to stay home from their jobs. The young girls are being pulled aside by the morality police to get whipped. Why? Because their, their toes were showing through sandals underneath their burqas. They don't hear these stories, They can, but they can condemn, for example, Israel that has a, a gay pride parade every year, the only country in the Middle East where Jews and Muslims and Christians can live side by side in peace. It, the only country in the Middle East where the Christian population, small minority population has actually increased in the last decade rather than dwindled. They don't look at any of the facts. They just hop on to these causes that they believe are the underdog. But now, there is only one lens by which the left looks at every single issue. Like I said, it is a prescribed way of living. And unfortunately it is, you know, um, 
it, it takes place on campus, but it has a certain narrative. It is pro-Islamic and it is anti-Jewish, for example. It is anti-conservatism. Uh, it's anti-GOP. It's anti-half of this country. Uh, and unfortunately, if, if anybody has diverse thoughts and opinions about any one of these things, as most of us do, when we have a nuanced position on many things, you know, from abortion to gay rights, to how we should deal with Afghanistan, to how we should enter or not enter into the Iran nuclear deal, into how we should treat our kids, into how we should deal with COVID and the shutdowns. These are all nuanced topics. But the way that we are treating, well, I should say the way that the media is treating the American public, and then the way in which the children are being taught in universities and in schools is complete indoctrination. We are not raising a generation of nuanced thinkers. We're raising a generation of cloned, you know, um, leftist, social justice seeking, but hypocritical uh, students who are, are not told or not, not encouraged to think for themselves. See, while uh, criticism of Islam is handled with kid gloves uh, by academia, not many people know uh, the kind of atrocity literature that the South Asian studies departments spew out on Hinduism. Hinduism is uh, considered to be inherently very oppressive. Um, Hindu phobic translations and interpretations abound uh, in this body of literature. There are vulgar depictions of Hindu deities. For example, the Hindu god Ganesha is, is an elephant-headed god and his trunk is uh, uh, considered a representation of a limp phallus. Even the grammar of uh, Sanskrit, the uh, ancient classical language is considered to be inherently oppressive in its, in its structure. Now, this has gone on for decades and the Hindus are not sort of the ones that, that go and protest and complain, but this is how uh, Hinduism is treated by academia on the other mm -hmm. side. But now it's 9-11, like you mentioned, 20 years after the worst terror attack, uh, attacks on American soil. And some of the South Asian studies professors have gotten together in partnership with Marxist uh, activists in India to have a conference called Dismantling Global Hindutva. So Hindutva is Hinduness. So a provocative title, Dismantling Global Hindutva on 9-11, which essentially distracts from the real culprits of 9-11. So do you think academia is very soft on Islamic terror? And um, if so, why? Yeah, absolutely. Wow, you you hit upon so many so many important points, uh, and I'll go through them as I as I remember them. But you know, these teachers never never give up an opportunity to connect with communists, with Marxists, with socialists, with anybody who is willing to dismantle. That word is so so. Uh, it's, it's poignant, it's extremely strong in its statement because that's what they aim to do. You don't hear about communists and Marxists and professors and that leftist, um, you know, leftist um, ideology. You don't hear them using words like build or strengthen or fortify. And you only hear those coming from the right these days. Dismantle, dismantle, that's all they wanna do. Dismantle the country, dismantle our foreign policy, dismantle the constitution, dismantle the, uh, the, the hierarchy of academia where these kids go into school to learn and to process in a certain way. They wanna dismantle all of that. So of course that academia goes soft on, 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 on 
extremist Islam for fear of being Islamophobic. So they always do the extreme, right? So who's bad? The white Christian male. Who's bad? The Jews. Who's bad? The Hindus. Why? Because they're strong in their character. They're not uh, victims. If you see, this is a culture of raising the victim, regardless of whether or not the victim is the true victim. It's the one who identifies as the victim that is supported. What do they do? They get people elected into Congress like Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. They get you know, spokeswomen like Linda Sarsour, who is the most hateful, vile extremist uh, who is running the uh, women's uh, march in, in New York, who only uses her platform to spew hatred. And these are the people that the left aligns themselves with. These are the people that the professors tell students to worship and to emulate. These are the people they want to be like. So for Hindus, I think it's a very important point that the most important thing that we can do is raise awareness because they're not loud. They're at school. And I know because I went to Rutgers and I know that the, the Hindu student population is there to get a pluses. They're there to build, 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 not dismantle. They're there to get the degrees and to move and go on to medical school or pharmacy school or engineering school. And that's a wonderful thing because that those are the values with which I was raised as well and that, that many Indian students are raised with. But these other students, they go to college, they even in their family, the culture is not to build and grow, the culture is to act like a victim. And you see this all throughout the world in places where this extremism rises. Why does extremism rise in Gaza, but not in Tel Aviv? Why does extremism rise in a, in, in a place like Pakistan, but not in a place like India? Because those individuals, and I'm generalizing, there are pockets of extremism everywhere. The reason I'm generalizing is to make the point that there has to be a culture of building and growing and raising awareness versus a culture of dismantling and destroying and, and negating everything with which we have been taught and, and raised. And I think that's the issue. I think Hindu students, they're not going to become that bully student who canceled my talk, but they do need to understand that they need to reunite, they need to raise awareness, and to stand in front and to expose, that's the best word I can use for this, to expose what the other side is doing. Excellent, I mean, I, I love the points that you made. Uh, what do you think the reaction would have been if there was a conference with a provocative title like Dismantling Global Islam, uh, Lisa? Right, exactly. That way, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have even made it to the print shop. Uh, that flyer, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have, because those are the, the sensitive buzzwords of today, right? Um, you know, just like we, we have, you know, outrage about an African American getting killed in a certain way, but we won't have that same outrage if, you know, a Hispanic or a white or an Irish or an Indian or a Persian, and I can go on and on. Uh, it's not to say that that black life isn't worthy, it, that black life, absolutely, everyone is worthy. But I'm just referring to the sensitivities of, of our culture today and the hypocrisy of our culture today. If our goal is to make the children of the next generation or, or even the, the general public more sensitive, more aware, more cognizant of human rights. Why do we pick and choose as to who deserves those rights? If a certain word or title is not good for the Muslim students, and that's that word and title shouldn't be good for the Jewish students or the Hindu students. And that's where you don't see those students, the Jewish students, the Hindu students, those type, that, that population, they're not protesting on college campuses. They're quiet. Uh, and for that reason, you know, Rutgers a few months ago during the conflict between 
Israel and Gaza. Um, if you remember, there was a lot of violence in the United States and in Canada and elsewhere against Jews who were just sitting at a restaurant here in Los Angeles and in New York City. These thugs would walk up to people who are dining in a restaurant and say, are you Jewish? And they would continue to beat them up or to threaten them. What does that have to do with what's going on in the Middle East? I mean, try to <laughs> tell me that that has to do with their, you know, the land, or that has to do with history, or that has to do with anything that has to do with what's going on in the Middle East. No, that has to do with anti-Semitism. And Rutgers decided to finally put out a statement and say, we stand against anti-Semitism. It was as simple as that. The bullies stood up and said, uh-uh, why did you issue such a statement? Now, if if someone came to you and said, why did you issue a statement you know, about the sky being blue? What would you say? Well, the sky is blue. You have to defend the fact that this is a very, very um, natural, necessary, and um, rightful uh, statement to be made by the university. They took it back. They sent out a statement saying, we're sorry. We didn't understand that our, our, our statement against anti-Semitism wasn't sensitive towards other populations at the school. I mean, I read this and I said, I'm done. I'm done with my alma mater. I'm done with Rutgers. I don't even want to talk about it more because I can't even make sense of this. They didn't say we are, you know, against anti-Semitism, but we're for, you know, Islamophobia or that we're choosing sides in the war in the Middle East. All they said was we stand against anti-Semitism on our campus and elsewhere. So basically by taking back their statement, they're saying we're really not against anti-Semitism. So if Jewish students are being beaten up on campus, so be it. And, you know, when you when you see things like that, I mean, what can you say? What can you say? We have come so far that we just have to have, you know, our 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 relatives and our children choose better schools or become more aware. Um, I don't know if it's the answer is not to go to these schools where, you know, this is but to become more aware. You know, I do what I do because I went to Rutgers because there was this very loud and obnoxious um, population of Middle Eastern students who did not know the history. They did not know the context. And in the classes, there would be huge debates as to the history of the region. And all they would do is make threats and get angry and bang on the table. But they had no facts at their fingertips. They didn't even know the history. And this comes from their families, you know, to maintain that victimhood, to maintain that hateful spite against the other. And that carries into all of their opinions. They just can't hear, you know, an opinion that goes against their own. And now you have teachers, professors, the chancellor of the school echoing this sentiment, doubling down on it. And so you have, you know, why, why, this is why we're at where we're at. It's unfortunate. Uh, Rutgers has over 5,000 Indian students, most of them Hindu. And so uh, they protested this conference. In fact, one of the key organizers of this dismantling global Hindutva conference is a, a Rutgers professor. So when these Hindu students protested, uh, Rutgers said, we believe in academic freedom. And although we don't support the conference. Now, can you see the duplicity and the double standards that Rutgers uses academic freedom? In your right. case, you were silenced. Right. Because, right, because there would be because there would be further protests, because there would be violence, because there would be altercations. And they know that the Jewish students, the Hindu students, the, the conservative students, any one of these groups would not be out on the streets protesting and rioting. That's just the way it goes. We see it in our own world and we see it on campus, a microcosm of what's going on in the world. They know their audience. They know that the Hindu students can take a, a, an intellectual answer and 
walk away with it. Perhaps they're not happy with the outcome, but they'll walk away with it and say, okay, we tried, but this is the outcome and they're going to support academic freedom or freedom of speech or whatever it is. In my case, they were afraid that those bullies would storm into the, into the talk and um, dismantle it physically if they have to, because that's all they know, that they are programmed to ruin, they're programmed to protest, they're programmed to just break things down. And for that reason, it's, uh, it's very difficult to combat them on a level of um, formality in terms of the school, in terms of legal recourse, in terms of words. It's very difficult to see eye to eye. And again, that's why we have such a divide in our country, because you know you have one side that wants to use their um, you know, emotions to fight. Uh, and that's that's the way they, they, they just shut down the other side. They're not even looking to, to see the other talking points to see perhaps I can learn a thing or two from the other side, or perhaps we can come to a happy medium where I can criticize you and you can say, okay, I concede and you can criticize besides me and I say, all right, I see your points, but they're not open to any of that. And that's, um, it's unfortunate. And it's unfortunate what happened to these Hindu students, because I think, you know, um, it's uh, the, the, the first, you know, such, I think, grand scale event where they thought, let's mobilize. And uh, it was met with, you know, this um, blockage where they continued on. No, but we are, we are all for freedom of, uh, freedom of speech, academic freedom, uh, generally Hindu students are all for it. But what happens is there is academic dishonesty. So while we stand for freedom of expression, speech, academic freedom, how does one call out academic dishonesty when right. they when the academic you know the department is a cartel of sorts? Um, even scholars with the dissenting voice uh, are you know they are blacklisted, and their careers essentially they can kiss it goodbye. So the university system has become so polarized that mm -hmm. if and and academics have become people with ideologies and anyone with a dissenting voice is silenced silenced because they are the self-appointed gatekeepers of uh, free speech right they're the ones who decide what is freedom of speech and what is hate speech to you and i that conference is hate speech to them it's freedom of speech because they want to honor uh the bullies uh to them um, i was hate speech and to, to you know then then the bullies were honored in, in that case it, it just goes to say my first word to describe all of this hypocrisy. So like you said, those students, perhaps they are for academic honesty and they are for academic integrity and they do wanna have the freedom of speech to hear the other side. When that is not matched with, it's not reciprocated by the other side, then you only hear one narrative on campus. So then you have Mary Smith, who doesn't know anything about Hindus, doesn't know anything about Islam, is walking past you know, the uh, apparatus that they build on so many of these campuses, for example, during uh, Israel Apartheid Week. I've visited so many campuses that have this. She doesn't know anything about either side, but she's walking on campus and all she hears is this one narrative. Israel's bad. Israel's bad. Hindus are bad. Hindus are bad. Israel's bad. You know, um, the, the GOP is bad. Republicans are bad. Uh, this is what they flood their minds with. So to them, they're being, they're giving freedom of speech, but it's only to their own side, only to their own narrative. And so that's what we have. So mainstream media, the journalists have become activists. Academia, we see scholars becoming activists. This is, there's a selective cancel culture and I say selective, um, and that seems pervasive in, in the university system. So 
where is all this stemming from is there hope what can students do uh, lisa yeah i think you know the cancel culture is pervasive meaning they students like the one that canceled my talk, for example, he gets that taste in his mouth, right? So this student goes on, he was a senior, he goes on to the workplace and all of a sudden he goes to HR as soon as he hears something he doesn't like. It's all about cancel culture. They don't, if someone says something on a news show or TV show, that person gets fired. Again, selective. Uh, so this cancel culture has given them a tool by which they can use the system in order to silence the voices that they don't agree with. What can we do? It's, it's pretty pervasive, right? And when you see it, in the universities, that means thousands upon thousands of students every single year that are graduating and coming into the workforce or, you know, joining, you know, adult, becoming adults and coming into their own are, you know, fueled with this type of emotional, um, these talking points that just, you know, are, are, are intolerant and they take this with them and they want to be babied and handled with kid gloves, as you said, I like that term. Um, then, you know, how do they go into the workplace? How do they, you know, open their eyes to a difference of opinion? How do they vote? Uh, that's, you know, that's really the issue and what to do about it. Well, I think that the other students have to join forces regardless of background. So it's not just the Hindus. It could be the Hindus with the conservatives. It could be the Hindus with the libertarians. It could be the Hindus and the Jews. It could be the Hindus and the Iranians who want, you know, this Islamic Republic to be out of their country. There are so many people that can join forces against this common bully, uh, that these are the, the unlikely allies that need to join forces. And I think that's a wonderful opportunity. Uh, they may have the, the bully power, but I think we have the mind power. And I think that, that it's a good way for you know, these different groups to come together. And on the global scale, I'll give you an example. Uh, things have been awful in the Middle East for moderate countries and for Israel. For many, many years, it was Iran running the show. And perhaps you know, then we saw ISIS come into Syria and Iraq. And of course, we've had all this uh, instability in Afghanistan uh, and elsewhere. But during this awful time, we saw a flower come out of the weeds, and that was the Abraham Accords. That was when Israel, together with moderate Arab nations like the UAE and Bahrain and Sudan and Morocco, uh, signed a, a, an accord where it's not just a piece of paper, but it's an actual relationship built on agreements and disagreements against other things, um, but agreements that they can focus on, prosperity and growth and building, not dismantling in the Middle East. And I think that this example can be taken into our universities, into the media, into anywhere else uh, that we'd like to find allies and people who are like-minded to help us in our causes. And I think it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity to give it you know, a silver lining here. In the world of foreign affairs and uh, Middle Eastern politics, the Abraham Accords has been a wonderful thing and it has proved to be a wonderful relationship between Israel and these uh, moderate Arab nations. And I think that on campuses, we can see a, a very similar accord of sorts of, of these different groups coming together. So with that, uh, Lisa, thank you so much. Uh, we will focus on building. We're going to air this episode on 9-11. And uh, let's focus on building wherever we are. We build the community, the society around us. So thank you so much for sharing your story. And I'm sure our viewers will find it motivational. And um, namaste to you. And best wishes to you for all the things that you do. Thank you. Namaste to you. Thank you for your work, the foundation's work, and uh, the best to, to you and all your viewers. Thank you. Thank you.